All right. Welcome to Elevate Your Grind, brought to you by the Cannabis Lab. Uh, this is a very, very, very special episode for me. Uh, I'm extremely excited. When Robert and I decided to start this podcast, this was probably the first name that I had down as an interview. Brady Cobb, I love you. Maybe you're my favorite operator on the show, but please welcome Cody Sanchez. Well, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. So again, we are recording live at the Benzinga Conference. Uh, Cody, you are at every single conference in the industry. I think one of the coolest things about you is, you know, you're one of those people kind of like, and I, and I equate this, and I hate comparing people, but you're like the Gary Vaynerchuk of the cannabis industry to me. You know, you, you're, you're still young, you're very successful, you're going to be even more successful, but you've started to throw the ladder back down and you're telling people hey it's hard but here's the blueprint you can you can do it too if you want to be me what drives you to do that i mean you you've been very successful you're you have a whole lot more to go but yet you're already starting to put the ladder back down for everybody else uh well thank you that's kind um honestly i think it really comes from the fact that I think we all have an obligation that when we get a hand up, we have to extend one down as well. And, you know, I'm a former journalist. We joked about we that. Um, and so I just have this natural curiosity about the way things work. And the way that I usually output that is writing. You know, I think we all have our pursuits that we like to do that are sort of a, a way for us to blow off some steam. And that for me is writing. And so I can have an ability to help and give a hand down because so many people have given me a hand up was simultaneously doing something that I love and I think I might be semi-skilled at, uh, <laughs> like writing. So I think that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. The other thing I'll say is we're in an industry that is you know, fraught with historical issues such as criminalization and you know, real issues with social equity and real issues with I'm Latina, with you know, black and brown people. And so it seems to me like if we're gonna go and create generational wealth, which is what we're yeah. all trying to do here, we've got to teach other people how to do it too. And I am a firm believer that the way to do that is not a hand out, it is a hand up. And so I try to do that every day. That's really cool. And that's one of the things I love about this industry and why I want to continue in it is I feel that we're small enough and it's early enough that we can all help each other. And yes, there's competition, and it, but really it's co-opetition, right? Totally. And I think that's incredible. Well, uh, especially for you, and I mean, I'm not just saying this because I'm on the show, but you know, you have such a hustle about you. From the first time I met you, you know, you kind of went above and beyond and, and really never took no as an answer from anybody, it seems like, who came across your path. And the beautiful part about that, I think, is then success, it's just a numbers game once yeah. you keep grinding the way that you do. No, a lot of it, you know, I follow guys like Gary Vee and I follow you, and a lot of it was you saying, hey, this is what I, I love, this is what I love seeing. And I'm just like, well, if she's one of the more successful people in the industry is then she's got to be right <laughs> so you, you have been an inspiration to me and I'm not going to keep you know sucking up to you on the show here um, but you, you mentioned that you started out as a journalist and the, one of the things that I love about you and then your colleague Tiffany as well I, I forget what you guys call each other but it was something to do with state schools because you went to ASU and of course she went to Florida State so I got to shout out my Knowles um, we've got two in this industry we've got Kim Rivers we got Brady Cobb down here yeah. in Florida Tiff, you're, you're a Noel as well, but you didn't go to Wharton or any of that other stuff. You did go to Georgetown, which is a good school, yeah. um, and then you went into journalism. So how did you take that path from journalism into the investing space? Sure. Well, yeah, we always joke about the public school hustle, I think. Public school yeah. hustle, that's right. Um, you know, well, it, it's interesting. There's beautiful things about education. My mom is a 30-year special education teacher, so that's near and dear to my heart. But um, 
But one of the most important things I found is that education in the traditional sense really seems to have very little correlation with at least when we've been hiring teams, actual success and output. And so, you know, we've hired people from Harvard and had to fire them, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and same thing with Princeton and same thing with Wharton. And what I found is much more important than where you went to school is how curious are you and what kind of drive do you have? And if you are a curious human with the ability to execute on your curiosity through drive, you'll probably go pretty far. Um, none of this stuff is really rocket science. You know, we're not curing cancer here. You know, yeah. we're, we're building out an industry that is in hyper growth mode. Um, and so the way that I got here is probably pretty different because I came, like I said, from a journalism background. I was writing about human trafficking and drug smuggling okay. at the time. And um, and I was a little bit disillusioned with what happens in the news today, which is we wrote about all these stories that were really meaningful and impactful, and then nothing really happened, right? Yeah. So really devastating issues of separation and death and destruction, and nothing happened. And so I started to think, well, what actually creates change? And even with all the narratives that we have today around wealth, which are largely negative, um, what I realized is the only difference between Cody Sanchez, my last name Sanchez, and a Maria Sanchez, who was on the border on, on the Mexican side, was that I had a better societal uh, background behind me. I had more money mm -hmm. from my family perspective and I was born in the US. And so it just got me thinking if awareness isn't enough, we're in a super awareness culture, right? Where it's like, no, I want to raise awareness for this. I want to tell my opinion on this. But we're not actually in a creation culture. And so in my opinion, one of the most you know important things I realized early is it wasn't enough to raise awareness. You have to actually create and do something. And the most powerful thing I think you can create is wealth because then you get to decide where that money goes and what change you want to make. That, that's incredible. And it's funny, I actually, a good friend of mine, Lisa Morris, and I'll give her a shout out too, um, she's a self-admitted liberal. She's, you know, very liberal. And when she made her money, she sold her company. She kind of said, I got into capitalism because I could, A, donate it to charity and hope they do something good with it. Yeah. Or I can be an investor and invest the money where I see it's needed in the world. And totally. I think you're on the same page. I think that's exactly right. That's very cool. So you're, you, you go from journalism to investing. Was it directly into cannabis? Was what yeah. you were seeing on the border helping you there? Yeah. Or was there a pit stop that kind of led you to cannabis? Was it that one investment option because everyone yeah. I talked to is a lawyer I got one cannabis client yeah. and that was the domino effect. yeah yeah I, I'm a long-standing institutional investor so I've only been in cannabis publicly for two years I've been investing in cannabis since 2014 I was a seed investor in our fund entourage effect and we tried to um, get research approved for veterans in Texas uh, cool. and access to cannabis we failed um, but those two things really spurred me into the space prior to that my entire history has really been an emerging markets or an institutional investment. So I did the traditional realm of Goldman Sachs and Vanguard and State Street Global Advisors, all these big, huge asset management firms. Um, and what I found was that if you can draft along the cultural conversation, and if you can draft along a tide with, a, with your, sort of the wind at your back, it's much easier to succeed. And so in cannabis, we saw a couple different things. They saw culturally we were moving towards this market of holistic medicine. We are moving towards a market of plant-based, non-GMO. There's a pushback against things like opioids, mm -hmm. rightly so. And in tandem with that, we were seeing this huge tide of money behind cannabis. And I thought, this is a space where you can have generational wealth creation and huge societal impact 
in one generation. And I think that's really rare to have both of those things. Yeah, it, to me, this is an industry, and you know, I come from the family office world and seeing uh, there's a trend among family offices to do more direct deals in venture and private equity. And to me, it almost seems like a natural transition for them to do that in cannabis because this is where the opportunities are, yep. right? Do you feel that same? I mean, obviously you yep. feel that same way. You have a fund around it, so. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we what we're typically seeing is, well, there's two things happening, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. One is family office investors typically started going direct first. So some of them might have not gone in 2014, but maybe 2016, 2017, 2018. They went direct. But then what they found is that the cannabis industry is actually wrought with peril. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of, you know, you we, we know this all too well. There's a lot of snakes in the grass. Yeah. And so um, if you're not actually in the industry and you know where the snakes are, you can get into trouble. So we actually saw a little bit of a reversion from family offices going direct to then they wanted to go to funds. We took advantage of yeah. that. And then they also want to do co-investments with with funds. So now they realize it's maybe a little dangerous to just go direct in this space. So we want to go with a fund and then we want to invest alongside a fund. Uh, and so that is one of the most interesting trends I've seen because usually it's you invest in funds first and then you go direct. And in cannabis it was sort of the other way around. No, and I, I agree with that, and I think you guys are doing a great job at Entourage Effect. You know, I know your team, and I love them. Um, I did say I, d I didn't want to get into your market views and everything else, but you said something um, after the last question that I really love. My, my wife is an addiction counselor, so I've seen the opiate crisis firsthand, or I've heard stories about it. I haven't seen it. Um, and to me, you know, part of the reason why I love the cannabis industry is the medical side of it, but I think the stigma around the industry and just the overall view of it is the recreational side gets a lot more views, there's more brands, it's out there, it's on Instagram and everything else yeah. because wellness and using cannabis for sickness, I don't know if it's just not sexy. From what you're seeing in the investment market, how is the medical side of things doing? Are we hindered because we can't do research? Yeah. And do you believe that it's actually medical cannabis that's going to drive legalization and all the positive things that we want to have in this industry? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I'm of two minds. I think what will actually drive legalization are, is, again, green, but not cannabis, it's money. Uh, what's going to yeah. drive legalization are tax dollars that politicians are going to see coming into their communities and them being able to fund programs to get reelected. And, and that's just how our country works at this stage. So just on that real quick, seeing the tax dollars, when it is typically a medical state, there are no tax dollars. So when you go rec, there's a lot of tax dollars. So Am I wrong? Is recreational going to drive it because it is the money? Yeah, well, I think I think it's both. I think politicians will say that medicinal reasons are why they're doing it. They'll say, we're doing this because yeah. it's for those that need it for opioid addiction. We're doing it for the young you know, girl with epilepsy. But what they're really seeing are dollar signs. And at the end of the day, I don't really care why they do it. I just think as long as they understand that... In my opinion, industries are typically better when you can have some regulation, taxation, as opposed to complete banning. We've never once seen an industry in which prohibition seems to work. But we humans are very yeah. silly little monkeys that run in circles <laughs> and forget that we've been there before. Oh, well, prohibition did give us organized crime, and after that we got movies like The Godfather and everything else, so I guess There's that was upside, something. Yeah. Right? Um, so, to me, you have one of the coolest jobs in the world. Right, you and, and I'm, again, we can go back into the, the the you know suck up mode here. But you get to be an architect of the cannabis industry, and that's you and Matt and Tiff and everybody on your team. You guys are basically architecting the cannabis industry. You're active investors. 
What's a day in the life of Cody Sanchez like? Is it, is it as awesome as I think it is, or, or is it just the grass I mean, is greener? You I know? think it's probably all of us just responding to emails all the time until, <laughs> you know, until Sunday or something, yeah. um, which is how it feels like half the time. But, you know, what is amazing is when you, when you invest, you know, people are, are sort of funny about venture capital and private equity, and they think that um, there's something bad about those two industries. But in fact, what you're doing is supplying tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of jobs, and you get to pick the founders who you believe will create a world that you want to live in, right? Because the way that we consume really drives the way that we live. And so, yes, I do think at a high level, the great part is exactly what you said. At a base level, you know, this industry, we're basically blocking and tackling all day, right? So we have 65 portfolio companies that we've invested in. 27 of them are in fund two. Uh, we're raising our third fund. So I don't know, we'll have like 15 or 20 in that fund as well. And so half the day is spent running around talking to our investors. Half the day is spent putting out fires with our portfolio companies. Then probably half the day is spent sort of learning in you know environments like these where we get to sit, take a step back and actually think strategically about the industry. That's really cool. So you, you'd mentioned just on your panel before, again, we are at Benzinga, that you guys are very, very active investors. When you look at a company, is one of the deciding factors, hey, if we plug this into our ecosystem, they're going to be huge, or I know this person, if I make that introduction, they're well worth investing. Is what you can do for them also part of that decision? A hundred percent. I mean, it, it shouldn't be the only thing. These need to be companies that theoretically could work on their own unless we're bringing in operating partners to take over the company and run it, which sometimes we do. Um, but So they need to be self-sufficient, but no doubt, the, the word entourage effect, I mean, you know this, yeah. but it basically means the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And so we are very big about creating a platform of companies across the space. For instance, you know, I was just talking about Sublime on stage, and Sublime has one of the number one pre-rolls out there in California. And so we were able to get Sublime into most of the top dispensaries in California. And you can take a company that's doing 10 million in revenue and get them to 20 or 30 pretty quick if you were invested in all the big MSOs originally and we were invested in a lot of them. Yeah. So on that point, so the MSOs right now, I guess there's a lot of negative press around them and yeah. some of them have done a very good job, but like you said, a lot of them went for market share and now they're out of cash. Yeah. Are we at a point right now where the MSOs that are household names right now may not be around for the near future, or at least not in the form that they're in now, they're going to be acquired or rebranded yeah. or anything? And is it the companies that bootstrapped within their states and kind of said, hey, we're going to focus on our state, we're going to get sales, we're going to get profitable, and now at this point with everything being somewhat distressed, now they have the chance to pounce. Are those the MSOs of the future and the brands that are gonna be household names? Or is that where we're gonna see our Budweiser or our Bud Light come from? Yeah, I mean, I I know it's hard for you because you have a lot of investments there. So this is every company that EEC is not a part of. Yeah. Um, I think that there'll be a couple things. One, I'm very worried about companies that don't have 12 months of cash. So if you're a big MSO out there and you're burning cash like crazy and you don't have 12 months of capital, I'm concerned. I think you should raise capital. It's why you're seeing seeing deals like the deal Acreage just did, the deal Ascend just did. Um, So that's one half of it. On the other hand, there's a lot of small dispensary operators 
inside individual states that are doing like $10 million in revenue. But the problem is, is are they differentiated? Can they get outside of the state? Do yeah. they have enough capital to do it? This is becoming a very capitally intensive businesses. I think the MSOs that survive are the ones that have enough money to do it and actually have SOPs where they're getting close to profitability, like a true leaf, let's say. So, and, and Kim, hopefully you'll, you'll watch this and I, I know you're gonna do our show eventually. We're really looking forward to that. Um, what I was going to say, and I kind of forgot my point there, was uh, we'll come back to that actually. Mm -hmm. So going back to the job because I lost my train of thought, mm -hmm. um, and we can edit this out if you're not comfortable talking about. It. I know sure. you're a very important figure. Are you a cannabis user? Is this part yeah. of the reason why you're in there? Yeah. Does it? Do you use it in your daily life? Because part of what I want to do with this podcast is show. Listen, it's not a bunch of lazy stoners. People use cannabis for different. Not everybody needs to smoke an entire gram joint. Some people will take a hit or two just to feel yeah. kind of baseline. Are you a user? And if you're not comfortable yeah. talking about it, we oh, don't no, have to worry totally. about it. I mean, well, first of all, if you're in this industry, I think you should want to use some aspect or at least of try the it. Yeah. yeah. So I would say, like most people, I started with um, CBD creams. So I'm I'm an athlete. My significant others in the military, special forces, and so you know he was always talking about all these different. Um, you know, different products that you could use to help with recovery. And um, one of the things that military cannot use is CBD. So yeah. I started explaining and experimenting with it, and he still can't. He'll be out soon, so he can. So I started there. Then I, um, I'm i not like a big cannabis user as far as from a okay. daily perspective, um, but I um, love some of the microdose products. Like we have Can, which is a very small um, sort of like a social tonic, so like a Perrier, but has cannabis inside of it, 2.5 milligrams. So I would totally sip on that instead of a glass of wine, yeah. right? And I definitely see the case for edibles for sleeping when I'm on red eyes like I was last night. Yeah. Um, so those are the scenarios in which I use it. I'm not a huge recreational user of it. I would say I'm more of a wellness user. And, and the reason I think that is, is because, and this industry is figuring this out, it's hard to figure out dosing yeah. still. So I think as the industry gets better at that, I might become more of a user because I know if I have one glass of wine, how I'm going to feel, I don't always know that with cannabis products. And I think that to me, that's actually to me is the future of our industry is actually the lower doses, the lower THCs. Totally like someone who's drinking a beer and you can go anywhere from one to nine before you go from a buzz to go home, leave your keys, yeah. right? Um, but when you go into a dispensary, and I'm going to call out California as I typically do, the bud tenders seem to push you to whoever the highest THC so product is. Yep. Do you, I mean, is that what you guys are looking for? What are the yeah. smaller doses? Is this, yeah. and are you looking for more wellness-based investments over just pure recreational, we're making stuff that's gonna knock you out? Oh, 100%. I mean, I think you're crazy if right now you are looking at historical consumers and cannabis and choosing those products. Now, there'll be a space for those, just like in any other industry, but, you know, a, a 60 milligram bottle of cannabis wine, to me, is not how consumers yeah. are going to consume. They're going to want small, microdose, controllable, and in fact, there's lots of great data by BDS Analytics, who's one of the best data companies out there, we invested in them, um, that tell you exactly what consumers want. Um, so consumers are already starting to sell us, and they're not interested in you know, having the one experience that everybody's had with an edible where, you know, you're, you're thinking you're never going to touch cannabis again. They don't want to experience yeah. that. And so I think, you know, this, the Chardonnay PTA mom in the future probably starts incorporating cannabis instead in a way that is super dosable. No, that's very cool. I mean, my biggest problem with the edible companies is some of these companies, 
should just go straight into food and beverage because they make phenomenal baked goods and everything else. But you know, it, it, you got to know your, your limits there. Yeah. Um, so one of the, the other things I wanted to talk about in this industry is historically a lot of funds popped up around ancillary services, uh, service providers, and they were not quote unquote investing in plant touching. You yeah. guys didn't really take that path. Yep. We're at a point right now where the industry is a little bit cash starved. I think the money's getting smarter. But to me, I look at that, are the plant touching businesses now safer investments? Disregard the fact that it's federally illegal, but that if they don't have money, the service providers are not getting paid. Yeah, that's right? a great point. Is, are, is plant touching the safer bet now? Yeah. Well, I do think we've never liked band-aid businesses. So like somebody once asked me, you know, who's going to be the oracle of cannabis? And I was like, oracle. <laughs> You know, and so if, I think I stole that line from you. Yeah, Actually, I was wondering where I got good. it from. Now you know. Sorry. So, um, so we don't like band-aid businesses, which I think a lot of those ancillary services are. Yeah. Lots of people pitch me. You know, we're going to be the the next HR of cannabis, or we're going to be the next big consulting firm of cannabis, and all of that is great. But um, I don't think we'll have the venture-style returns that we're looking to have since we target three to five x. Um, I don't know if I think they're safer, but I do think that people who didn't invest in cannabis plant touching early they missed out. I mean, yeah. the returns that we were able to make in the first two funds are because we were willing to take the risk in this environment, and a lot of people just are not. Awesome. Well, I think you guys are doing amazing. You guys are doing great stuff in the industry. I know you guys are a big part of ArcView, too. Yeah. Um, I actually just learned, and I feel weird for not knowing this, that the ArcView funds feed up into you guys now. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. So was that from your involvement, your investment in ArcView? Is yeah. that how that progressed? Yeah. So, I mean, ArcView is a little bit of a turnaround. They were, you know, a, a great company that was started for incredible reasons, activism in the space. And, you know, we came into ArcView and said, you know, we think we could level up this company with the right operating partner. And so um, what we started to see is that the industry was moving towards growth equity, like our fund now. Mm -hmm. We invest in companies later stage. And there's a huge gaping hole in seed stage. And so ArcView can fill that hole and then we can continue to carry on a company all the way from seed to IPO. And so that is the goal. That's awesome. I mean, it's like it's like your double A, triple A league and you guys get to be the big show. So. I, think, I think that's the plan. And then it allows for two layers of due